and welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you closer to nature and the wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davison, and I'm here once again with my co-host and fellow ranger, Carly Harrod. Hi, Carly. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm doing fine. I mean, we're talking about spring today, and hopefully we'll be seeing a few things coming out that indicate that spring is coming. Mm-hmm. There's a few things starting to come through at the moment. There's some daffodils coming up in my garden and some crocuses. I can't wait to get out and see what's appearing in the countryside. What's your favourite sign of spring, Andy? Well, it's sort of not like one day that's spring. There's things that come out as they as you go through, and it seems to cover over a couple of months, but certainly some of the first things. I mean, clearly we've had snowdrops already. The big fat bumblebees there, the queen bumblebees coming out of hibernation, starting to breed. Um, one of the first flowers you get out in hedgerows is that really yellow lesser celandine, the really bright yellow little flowers. I love lesser celandines. They're so bright and beautiful. Yeah, and always remember that, and also primroses are quite early. I remember my granddad, we used to go and visit my grandparents, and there always used to be a bit of a prize for the first grandchild to find the first primrose. I mean, also, as well as the signs of spring things appearing, you've got the winter birds departing, all those winter thrushes, uh, the waders and brent goose on the coast. Yeah, our brent geese, we get 12% of the world's population of brent geese. We've also got other birds appearing, haven't we? We've got the chiff chaffs coming in and the terns are starting to return to breed. Those appearance of those breeding birds for the summer, you know, it's, it's clearly one of the first signs of spring as well. And there's that changeover that takes the place between the birds departing and the birds, new birds coming in and birds passing through. So that's what we're going to be talking to the two rangers about today, isn't it? Yes. One of my favourite signs of spring not is not just the birds, it's also the butterflies starting to come out. I love brimstones and they're one of the first butterfly species to appear each spring. And actually, it's probably that that's why butterflies are called butterflies. Mm-hmm. Because the brimstone moth is sort of a buttery colour and hence you get butter coloured fly and butterfly. Yeah. I don't I wouldn't don't think I'd eat butter if it was actually a brimstone colour, because it's a little bit greeny yellow and it might be a bit off. <laughs> So we talked about birds. So one of my favourite things about spring is the great migration of birds that happens on our shore. And today we have Dave from BirdAware Sonar with us to talk about birds that are leaving us at this moment. Hi, Dave. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. That's my first ever podcast, so quite exciting. Yeah, so you work for BirdAware Solent, don't you, Dave? So clearly uh, you're interested in the birds in the Solents, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm a seasonal ranger here with BirdAware. And uh, yeah, but I do like coastal birds. I've, I've worked around various places on the on the UK coast, so yeah, they are, they are an interest in mine. So we're talking about the birds leaving those winter birds, but I mean, maybe the first question is why do they come here in the first place? Yeah, so the birds that come here are, are uh, breed in the in, in the Arctic Circle in various places. As as the as the year gets later, the days start to get shorter. It gets colder. There's less food around for them, so they uh, migrate south to get longer days and more more of a food supply and obviously warmer weather. Yeah, it's clearly the middle of winter. It's all, you know, it's land of the midnight sun up there. So there's no daylight. That everything's frozen, so all that food's locked away. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. There might be a bit of a question of why do they go back? Because if it's so cold and up there, it's surely cold through most of the year, colder than here. Why do they go back up there? Well, because they're smart and they realise that they get much longer daylight hours uh, in the summer. So there's more time for feeding. So it's a great place for them to breed. Um, in the springtime, uh, once the 
uh, weather gets warmer in the Arctic Circle, um, there's, there's a bit of a thaw. Um, there's vegetation that appears and that attracts uh, millions and millions of insects. So there's a, there's a great food source available for them. So they're heading back there. It's quite a specialist place to live and probably, you know, they haven't got much time to actually get the breeding done up there, have they? No, it is quite a short breeding season. So, um, you know, one, one advantage in them going there is that it's very easy to find a nesting site. There's plenty of room. There's less competition for nesting space. Um, and there's also like fewer um, natural predators around. Uh, they do have, you know, there are predators around like Arctic foxes and snowy owls, but relatively few. And I think probably because, you know, there's the numbers of predators aren't as high as if there was food all the way through the year, is there? So you've got in the winter, they haven't got much, much prey. Um, but in the summer, they might have loads of prey, but there's not many predators to eat with them all, is there? Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things is that in the case of uh, species like the Arctic fox, we, uh, they, they will tend to prey if, if, uh, if the lemming populations are high, they'll tend to prey on those. But if the lemming populations are low, lower for some reason, they'll tend to start predating, uh, you know, uh, say like Brent goose eggs and things like that. So it, it, there's, there's, a, there's a connection there between, oddly enough, between like lemming populations and, and how, how many uh, Brent geese are getting predated, which is sort of interesting. Yeah, it's amazing, again, once again, how all these things are interconnected and how they interrelate and that tiny little balance that works all the time, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. So, I mean, clearly they've got to leave our... I mean, how far do they fly? I mean, the Brent geese, for example, how long does it take them to get back up to their breeding grounds? In the case of Brent geese, so, like, different species migrate to different places in the Arctic Circle. It's sort of interesting. In the case of Brent geese, we know that they all migrate up to Siberia, uh, roughly... A, about 3,000 mile migration. So they can't make that in one go. So they'll, they'll have stop-off points on the way where they can sort of rest and refuel. And there's, a, there's actually one of the, the biggest places for that is a place called Wallen Sea, I believe it's called, um, off the coast of like Holland and Germany, uh, which is like a massive sort of intertidal area where they can stop off to feed. You do occasionally see the odd brink goose hanging around the summer, because I think that, but that, you know, it might be one in the entire Solent, but quite often... You know, they might have been injured or they haven't built up the breeding condition because it takes a lot of energy to get up and fly that far, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And and this is, um, you know, our bird aware's mission is like we keep telling people like they need to spend the whole winter refueling and resting as far as possible um, so that they do have that, that energy to make the journey. Uh, and especially this time of year it's where they're sort of like on the final the final stretch, if you like, before they actually make the move. So we talked about brink geese, but waders are clearly important for the Solent as well. But do all of the waders go back up north, or is there a few that hang around down here as well? There are there are some that, that remain in the UK. Um, so, uh, for example, uh, some oyster catchers migrate, but some of them will, will stay in the UK year-round. And uh, you see that behaviour from uh, ring plovers as well. And there are some species of ducks, um, for example, the teal is one that you'll, you'll get some that uh, will hang around in the UK. Uh, but what you'll, what you'll probably find is that like, a lot of these birds will, will maybe spend the breeding season in the far north of Britain. You'll get that a lot with like uh, golden plovers and curlews and that, where they'll head maybe to lot more like upland Scotland areas and then come down south for the winter. Lapwings, same thing. So there are a, a tiny handful, I think, of, of um, curlew that even breed in Hampshire. I mean, it's probably maybe half a dozen to 20 that breed in the new forest, isn't there? 
Yeah, I, be, I believe so. Yeah, um, and I know that um, the curlew being being a threatened species in the UK, um, there are big efforts underway, especially by the RSPB, to um, like sort of head start projects where they're trying to really encourage um, landowners uh, to participate in these curlew breeding projects. You know, try to create habitat, breeding habitat for them. You know, to try and uh, give them that head start. Yeah, because it's all very well defending and protecting the, the the wintering grounds, but unless you protect where they're passing through and where they're breeding, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna win at the end of the day, are you? Exactly. Yeah, and that's why you have all these um, you know monitoring projects that go on uh, for for some of the you know the waders and things. So what sort of monitoring projects are we talking about here? How do you monitor these birds? Breeding colony, they'll literally have like a 24-hour shift rotation. Once, especially once the once um, eggs have hatched, um, they'll they'll actually have a 24-hour uh, shift rotation monitoring the the colony to, uh, you know, uh, check for predators and things like that. A lot of that's tied in with specialist projects where you put rings on the birds so people catch them in various ways and they put metal rings with a certain number on it. So if they found again or they're caught again, they can see the numbers. On the brake geese, you've got, do you ever see the big rings they have, the coloured rings they have on their legs? Yeah, um, you'll see that on the geese and, and, and quite a few waders too. In fact, there's, there's like one or two waders that have been spied with about three or four rings on them. Yeah, something like, because the metal ring's the sort of standard one you use with all birds, with a set number just for that bird. Um, yeah. But you get combinations. So the waders, quite often you'll, you'll see... A metal ring on one leg and a hot combination of colours on the other leg. Um, oh, and again, right. then people can see that from distance. You don't need to catch them. Um, mm. And also the, uh, the brink geese, they quite often have like a colour ring with numbers and letters on. And you can identify specific birds with those. Right. Yeah. I don't think I've, I've seen any myself this year, but then there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of brints out there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try to pick the one or two out of the 10,000 that are out there. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> quite um, fine if you see one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but also because uh, clearly there's like um, data loggers where they can put birds and they can track bird movement. And there's some, there's some of these birds as well, they don't winter here necessarily all the time and they don't spend the entire summer, but they're just on what we call on passage. I mean, do you know, can you explain that? Yeah, so um, Basically, uh, some of the birds will uh, prefer to spend the winter uh, in Africa, like in West Africa or, or in Southern Europe. Um, so the UK actually is, lies on what's known as the East Atlantic Flyway, um, which is one of the main uh, migratory routes in the world. There's about eight of them. And so that, that's one reason that makes it a great sort of uh, stopping off point for birds that are en route to Africa and uh, places like Portugal and Spain. So, you know, they, they stop here to refuel and rest a bit and then they carry on on their, on their merry way down to warmer climates. Birds like, um, for example, the wimbrel is basically exclusively a, a passage migrant. You, you, you're very unlikely to see a wimbrel around a solent like in the middle of winter because uh, they'll all be sunning themselves down in, uh, in Europe or Africa. Yeah, I wish I was right at this moment. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Sounds pretty attractive just now, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does, yes. Now, the Sony is quite special, isn't it? Because, I mean, unlike places like Dorset or Sussex, where those little muddy estuary systems are just around the river mouths, I mean, but 
most of the coast has got mud along it as in Hampshire, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the Silent. That's what makes the Silent unique, really. Is got this massive network of, of um, huge uh, natural harbors, um, and they they provide like miles of um, intertidal uh, mudflats and shallows. Um, and those shallows and, and mudflats are teeming with um, food like mollusks, like cockles, whelks, uh, mud snails, worms. And as well as that, um, there's a good supply of uh, eelgrass, which is a type of seagrass. And that's, that's, that's one of the favourite foods uh, for the brown geese. And it's thanks to the Isle of Wight sitting offshore, isn't it? That, uh, so you've got this big lump of land sitting off there. We didn't have the Isle of Wight sitting over there. All that mud and would have been washed away. We'd have pebbly beaches like a lot of places, wouldn't we? Right, yeah, like further, yeah, further east, like on the coast, yeah. So clearly the um, bits, this Solent is very important, not just for the wintering birds, it's for the passage birds as well, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. As we said, all of these birds have massive distances to travel, so they do need to be uh, feeding and resting as much as possible over the winter. So, yeah, please, uh, especially at this time of year, like I said, because it's the home stretch now, please give these, these waders and, and uh, wildtail ducks, geese, lots of space to, to feed and rest. And it's not just birds that are leaving this time of year, is it, Andy? Oh, we've talked quite a bit about other birds coming through and birds arriving too. So clearly the estuary is important for all sorts of birds. So we've talked to Dave today about birds that are leaving us. And now we're going to be joined by Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi. Thank you for inviting me today. That's OK. Now, you also work for BirdAware Solent, don't you? And this is the end of your second winter season with the team. But last year you worked with the RSPB during the summer. Yes, that's correct. Uh, luckily, Bird Aware Solent invited me back to work a second uh, winter season. But last year I did work for RSPB as a turn warden on the Limington Nature Reserve. And the project was the um, Rosie Turn Life Recovery Project. Uh, like I say, I was based at Limington Nature Reserve and I worked alongside the Hampshire Countryside Rangers. So what was your role with the RSPB last year? My role as a, a turn warden was to do a lot of monitoring of the turns and um, a little bit of habitat management, uh, a little bit of protecting the turns, uh, talking to people, trying to educate them what what's happening and why they need to be protected. Also, I was lucky enough to uh, drive a little boat around the salt marshes and do some monitoring that way as well. That sounds like a lot of fun. But what is so special about turns? Well, I'm a little bit biased because as I spent the whole of last summer monitoring and looking after them, there's lots of things special about them. Uh, a lot of People do call them as uh, sea swallows, actually. But there is one special turn that um, I'll quickly tell you about. It's the Arctic turn. The, the Arctic turn holds the record for the longest migration of any animal in the world. They, uh, they annually make the journey from the Arctic Circle to the Antarctic Circle. And this can mean a round trip of up to 22,000 miles. Um, 
I think Dave mentioned earlier, some of the birds actually search for long day hours to feed. And this is what the uh, Arctic tern does. And by moving continually between the Arctic summer and the Antarctic summer, the Arctic tern sees more daylight than any other animal on Earth. Wow. Yeah. And that's primarily because they feed by sight and they need the daylight to um, search for their their food. It's a long way to go for for a bit of food, though, isn't it? I don't think well, I'd go that far for a McDonald's. Well, they're, they're so special. They're so small. And um, it's amazing that they can actually make that journey. And they have so many hazards on the way. Um, so although I've talked about the Arctic turn, Along the Solent, the main terns we do see are the common tern, the sandwich tern and the little tern. And they're just as special as well. And where have they been for the winter? For the winter, so most terns migrate to Africa in the autumn and return back here uh, to the UK in the spring. They migrate to Africa and a lot of the common terns go to West Africa. But as mentioned earlier, the Arctic turn goes even further south than West Africa, South Africa, and even further still. We talked to Dave about what we can do in the winter to reduce our impact of disturbance onto the birds. What can we do in the summer to help the breeding birds? With the, um, with the terns, they are special because they're ground nesting birds. So disturbance is a big problem. But Many factors influence their uh, breeding success, including um, climate change, rising sea levels, uh, food supply, predation, summer storms. So anything we can do to um, limit disturbance to them will help them face some of the pressures I've just mentioned. And to be honest, it's a lot of um, probably what Dave's already mentioned and what a lot of the bird aware Solent uh, rangers talk about. So if we can give our ground nesting birds lots of space, and if you go for a walk along the beach, just keep your eyes open because some of the, the eggs of our terns are so well camouflaged in the shingle that it's very, very easy to, to step on a nest or an egg. But um, also, uh, I'd have to say from driving around in my little boat last summer that there's lots of salt marsh islands offshore and water sports are very popular over the last year or two, especially paddle boarding and kayaking. And it's really tempting to land on some of these sea salt marshes. So also please do keep out for signs. There are, the rangers do put a lot of signs out on sensitive areas saying no landing and the purpose of this is that a lot of birds do nest on these um, shingle areas and it might look a nice spot to have a barbecue and a picnic but those nesting seabirds are probably in that shingle and you can't see them um, and if you land you're going to disturb them they're going to fly away and those little chicks can get um, quite chilled on a not so sunny day or on a hot day they can become very hydrated and if their parents don't return they're going to perish so um, I guess summarizing 
I would say the message would be give the birds lots of space. When you go for a walk, keep your eyes open. And especially if you can keep your dogs close to you or on the lead, especially on beaches. I know some of the beaches have specific no-go areas in the springtime to stop dogs going for, for a walk on the beach. So, yeah, just keep your eyes open would be the big message. Brilliant. And some of our wading birds that we see in the winter on the coast, like the curlew, we talked about earlier with Dave, but they do actually breed in the new forests, don't they? That is correct. That's very true. And it's not only uh, the curlew, some of the lapwing do and some of the redshank do as well. Curlew are becoming endangered. They're on the RSPB red list. There's about 40, I think there's about 40 breeding pairs in the new forest, spread around the new forest. So that's not a huge number. And out of 40, uh, there are not many um, chicks that survive, mainly because of predation and human disturbance. So um, we do need to take care to look after these ground nesting birds because curlew is a ground nesting bird, so is a red shank and so is a lapwing. So it's very important, isn't it, that not just when we're on the coast, but when we're walking inland in inland areas, keep an eye out for what might be around us. If you see a bird fly up from the ground, then don't go near it. Try and avoid that area and always keep your dogs close by. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. And I, I would add to that. Um, yeah, keep your dogs on the path and close to you. And also, um, if you ride a horse, try and stick to the bridleways and to the paths and on the main tracks. And, and just look out for the signs. The rangers do put up signs to, to try and remind you of how sensitive some of these areas can be. Um, and also, you're more, more likely to see a bird if you stick to the path rather than um, if you wander off and then you'll, you'll scare it off and fly away. And the same thing, is, the same thing again. The little chicks could become dehydrated or if their parents have flown off, they are um, liable to predation from lots of mammals and uh, larger birds, basically. Um, so, yeah, again, the message is stick to the path, look out for signs, um, keep your dogs close to you. And another thing, um, if you want to keep your dogs safe, there is a danger of adder bites as well in the new forest and also for them picking up ticks so if you can keep to the path you, you'll keep your dog safe as well brilliant thank you so much mark for coming to talk to us i hope you have fun this summer when wherever you end up well it's been a pleasure thank you for inviting me and i've enjoyed i've enjoyed answering your questions brilliant <laughs> So that was really interesting, wasn't it? I mean, clearly the, the giving birds uh, in space when they're breeding as well as when they're here in the winter is all very important, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely an important message to give the birds space to feed, rest and nest. Yeah, it's very clear. I do like my birds, but these areas are so great for many other species in Hampshire. Um, it's not just the birds in our coastal areas. We have seals, mollusks, lugworms, um, and some of these things migrate. I mean, it's maybe not as obvious as the birds flying. Well, it's quite hidden, but you get crabs and fish coming in the estuary to breed and spawn. It's never changing habitat, isn't it? 
It is, and it's brilliant. And we are so lucky to have this coastline in Hampshire. So, Andy, are you ready for this month's fact? Yes, I think I'm ready for you, Carly. Okay, it's nothing to do with birds. I'm <laughs> sorry. But did you know that harbour seals' whiskers are so sensitive that they can sense a fish from over 35 metres away? That is quite impressive. Is that by sight? No, that's from their whiskers. So their whiskers are really sensitive. They have 40 to 50 whiskers on each side of their face. And each whisker has about 1,500 nerves at the base of it, which is 10 times that found in rats or cats. So we think cats are good at using their whiskers. Seals are better. They can even determine the size and shape of the fish using the vibrations in the water and their whiskers. It's amazing how different animals see the world different, well, not even see the world differently, perceive the world differently, you know, because we think about mainly about hearing and sight, but touch is so important to a lot of other things, isn't it? If you want to find out more about the wonderful bird life on our coasts, you can visit the BirdAware website or their social media pages for lots of fantastic information. And it's always a good place to ask questions either, because they can always find some sort of expert or some knowledge who might be able to, you know, answer any questions you have out there. Yep, so if you've got any questions or comments or thoughts, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, let us know through our social media pages. We are Hampshire's Countryside Service. And we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people to find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time. (laughs) 